Part Seven of Lady Interfox by David Garnet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. For several days after this, he lived very soberly, for his weakness continued. But every day he read in the Bible and prayed earnestly so that his resolution was so much strengthened that he determined to overcome his folly or his passion if he could and at any rate to live the rest of his life very religiously so strong was this desire in him to amend his ways that he considered if he should not go to spread the gospel abroad for the bible society and so spend the rest of his days Indeed, he began a letter to his wife's uncle, the canon, and he was writing this when he was startled by hearing a fox bark. Yet so great was this new turn he had taken, that he did not rush out at once, as he would have done before, but stayed where he was, and finished his letter. Afterwards he said to himself that it was only a wild fox, and sent by the devil to mock him, and that madness lay that way, if he should listen. But, on the other hand, he could not deny to himself that it might have been his wife, and that he ought to welcome the prodigal. Thus he was torn between these two thoughts, neither of which did he completely believe. He stayed thus, tormented with doubts and fears, all night. The next morning he woke suddenly with a start, and on the instant heard a fox bark once more. At that he pulled on his clothes and ran out as fast as he could to the garden gate. The sun was not yet high, the dew thick everywhere, and for a minute or two everything was very silent. He looked about him eagerly, but could see no fox, yet there was already joy in his heart. Then, while he looked up and down the road, he saw his vixen step out of the copse about thirty yards away. He called to her at once. My dearest wife! Oh, Sylvia, you are come back! And at the sound of his voice, he saw her wag her tail, which set his last doubts at rest. But then, though he called her again, she stepped into the copse once more, though she looked back at him over her shoulder as she went. At this he ran after her, but softly, and not too fast, lest he should frighten her away, and then looked about for her again, and called to her when he saw her among the trees, still keeping her distance from him. He followed her then, and as he approached, so she retreated from him, yet always looking back at him several times. He followed after her through the underwood at the side of the hill, when, suddenly, she disappeared from his sight behind some bracken. When he got there, he could see her nowhere, but looking about him found a fox's earth, but so well hidden that he might have passed it by a thousand times, and would never have found it, unless he had made particular search at that spot. But now, though he went on his hands and knees, he could see nothing of his vixen, so that he waited a little while, wondering. 
Presently he heard a noise of something moving in the earth, and so waited silently, then saw something which pushed itself into sight. It was a small, sooty black beast like a puppy. There came another behind it, then another, and so on, till there were five of them. Lastly there came his vixen, pushing her litter before her, and while he looked at her silently, a prey to his confused and unhappy emotions, he saw that her eyes were shining with pride and happiness. She picked up one of her youngsters then in her mouth, and brought it to him, and laid it in front of him, and then looked up at him very excited, or so it seemed. Mr. Tebrick took the cub in his hands, stroked it, and put it against his cheek. It was a little fellow, with a smutty face and paws, with staring vacant eyes of a brilliant electric blue, and a little tail like a carrot. When he was put down, he took a step towards his mother, and then sat down very comically. Mr. Tebrick looked at his wife again, and spoke to her, calling her a good creature. Already he was resigned, and now, indeed, for the first time, he thoroughly understood what had happened to her, and how far apart they were now. But looking first at one cub, then at another, and having them sprawling over his lap, he forgot himself, only watching the pretty scene, and taking pleasure in it. Now and then he would stroke his vixen and kiss her, liberties which she freely allowed him. He marvelled more than ever now at her beauty, for her gentleness with the cubs, and the extreme delight she took in them, seemed to him then to make her more lovely than before. Thus, lying amongst them at the mouth of the earth, he idled away the whole of the morning. First he would play with one, then with another, rolling them over and tickling them, but they were too young yet to lend themselves to any other more active sport than this. Every now and then he would stroke his vixen or look at her, and thus the time slipped away quite fast, and he was surprised when she gathered her cubs together and pushed them before her into the earth, then coming back to him once or twice, very humanly bid him good-bye, and that she hoped she would see him soon again, now he had found out the way. So admirably did she express her meaning, that it would have been superfluous for her to have spoken had she been able, and Mr. Tebrick, who was used to her, got up at once and went home. But now that he was alone, all the feelings which he had not troubled himself with when he was with her, but had, as it were, put aside till after his innocent pleasures were over, all these came swarming back to assail him in a hundred tormenting ways. Firstly he asked himself, was not his wife unfaithful to him? Had she not prostituted herself to a beast? Could he still love her after that? but this did not trouble him so much as it might have done, for now he was convinced inwardly that she could no longer, in fairness, be judged as a woman, but as a fox only, and as a fox 
she had done no more than other foxes. Indeed, in having cubs and tending them with love, she had done well. Whether in this conclusion Mr. Tabrick was in the right or not, is not for us here to consider. But I would only say, to those who would censure him for a too lenient view of the religious side of the matter, that we have not seen the thing as he did, and perhaps, if it were displayed before our eyes, we might be led to the same conclusions. This was, however, not a tenth part of the trouble in which Mr. Tabrick found himself, for he asked himself also, was he not jealous? And looking into his heart, he found that he was indeed jealous, yes, and angry too, that now he must share his vixen with wild foxes. Then he questioned himself if it were not dishonourable to do so, and whether he should not utterly forget her, and follow his original intention of retiring from the world and see her no more. Thus he tormented himself for the rest of that day, and by evening he had resolved never to see her again. But in the middle of the night he woke up with his head very clear, and said to himself in wonder, Am I not a madman? I torment myself foolishly with fantastic notions. Can a man have his honour solid by a beast? I am a man. I am immeasurably superior to the animals. Can my dignity allow of my being jealous of a beast? A thousand times, no. Were I to lust after a vixen, I were a criminal indeed. I can be happy in seeing my vixen, for I love her. But she does right to be happy according to the laws of her being. Lastly, he said to himself, what was, he felt, the truth of this whole matter. When I am with her, I am happy. But now I distort what is simple, and drive myself crazy with false reasoning upon it. Yet, before he slept again, he prayed. But though he had thought first to pray for guidance, in reality he prayed only that on the morrow he would see his vixen again, and that God would preserve her, and her cubs too, from all dangers, and would allow him to see them often, so that he might come to love them for her sake, as if he were their father, and that if this were a sin he might be forgiven, for he sinned in ignorance. The next day or two he saw vixen and cubs again, though his visits were cut shorter, and these visits gave him such an innocent pleasure that very soon his notions of honour, duty, and so on, were entirely forgotten, and his jealousy lulled asleep. One day he tried taking with him the stereoscope and a pack of cards. But though his Sylvia was affectionate and amiable enough to let him put the stereoscope over her muzzle, yet she would not look through it, but kept turning her head to lick his hand, and it was plain to him that now she had quite forgotten the use of the instrument. It was the same, too, with the cards, for with them she was pleased enough, but only delighting to bite at them, and flip them about with her paws, and never considering for a moment whether they were diamonds, or clubs, or hearts, or spades, or whether the card was an ace or not. 
so it was evident that she had forgotten the nature of cards, too. Thereafter, he only brought them things which she could better enjoy, that is, sugar, grapes, raisins, and butcher's meat. By and by, as the summer wore on, the cubs came to know him, and he them, so that he was able to tell them easily apart, and then he christened them. For this purpose he brought a little bowl of water, sprinkled them as if in baptism, and told them he was their godfather, and gave each of them a name, calling them Sorrel, Caspar, Selwyn, Esther, and Angelica. Sorrel was a clumsy little beast of a cheery and, indeed, puppyish disposition. Caspar was fierce, the largest of the five. Even in his play he would always bite, and gave his godfather many a sharp nip as time went on. Esther was of a dark complexion, a true brunette, and very sturdy. Angelica, the brightest red, and the most exactly like her mother, while Selwyn was the smallest cub, of a very prying, inquisitive, and cunning temper, but delicate and undersized. Thus Mr. Tabrick had a whole family now to occupy him, and, indeed, came to love them with very much of a father's love and partiality. His favourite was Angelica, who reminded him so much of her mother in her pretty ways, because of a gentleness which was lacking in the others, even in their play. After her in his affections came Selwyn, whom he soon saw was the most intelligent of the whole litter. Indeed, he was so much more quick-witted than the rest that Mr. Tabrick was led into speculating as to whether he had not inherited something of the human from his dam. Thus, very early, he learned to know his name, and would come when he was called, and what was stranger still, he learnt the names of his brothers and sisters before they came to do so themselves. Besides all this, he was something of a young philosopher, for though his brother Caspar tyrannised over him, he put up with it all with an unruffled temper. He was not, however, above playing tricks on the others, and one day, when Mr. Tabrick was by, he made believe that there was a mouse in a hole some little way off. Very soon he was joined by Sorrel, and presently by Caspar and Esther. When he had got them all digging, it was easy for him to slip away and then he came to his godfather with a sly look, sat down before him and smiled, and then jerked his head over towards the others, and smiled again and wrinkled his brows, so that Mr. Tabrick knew, as well as if he had spoken, that the youngster was saying, "'Have I not made fools of them all?' He was the only one that was curious about Mr. Tabrick. He made him take out his watch, put his ear to it, considered it, and wrinkled up his brows in perplexity. On the next visit it was the same thing. He must see the watch again, and again think over it. But clever as he was, little Selwyn could never understand it, and if his mother remembered anything about watches, 
It was a subject which she never attempted to explain to her children. One day Mr. Tebrick left the earth as usual and ran down the slope to the road, when he was surprised to find a carriage waiting before his house and a coachman walking about near his gate. Mr. Tebrick went in and found that his visitor was waiting for him. It was his wife's uncle. They shook hands, though the Reverend Canon Fox did not recognize him immediately, and Mr. Tebrick led him into the house. The clergyman looked about him a good deal, at the dirty and disorderly rooms, and when Mr. Tebrick took him into the drawing-room, it was evident that it had been unused for several months. The dust lay so thickly on all the furniture. After some conversation on indifferent topics, Canon Fox said to him, "'I have called, really, to ask about my niece.' Mr. Tebrick was silent for some time, and then said, "'She is quite happy now.' "'Ah, oh, indeed. I have heard she is not living with you any longer.' "'No, she is not living with me. She is not far away. I see her every day now.' "'Indeed. Where does she live?' "'In the woods with her children.' I ought to tell you that she has changed her shape. She is a fox. The Reverend Canon Fox got up. He was alarmed, and everything Mr. Tebrick said confirmed what he had been led to expect he would find at Ryland's. When he was outside, however, he asked Mr. Tebrick, You don't have many visitors now, eh? No, I never see anyone if I can avoid it. You are the first person I have spoken to for months. "'Quite right, too, my dear fellow. I quite understand in the circumstances.' Then the cleric shook him by the hand, got into his carriage, and drove away. "'At any rate,' he said to himself, "'there will be no scandal.' He was relieved also, because Mr. Tebrick had said nothing about going abroad to disseminate the gospel. Canon Fox had been alarmed by the letter, had not answered it and thought that it was always better to let things be, and never to refer to anything unpleasant. He did not at all want to recommend Mr. Tebrick to the Bible Society if he were mad. His eccentricities would never be noticed at Stokoe. Besides that, Mr. Tebrick had said he was happy. He was sorry for Mr. Tebrick, too, and he said to himself that the queer girl, his niece, must have married him, because he was the first man she had met. He reflected also that he was never likely to see her again, and said aloud, when he had driven some little way, Not an affectionate disposition. Then to his coachman, No, that's all right. Drive on, Hopkins. When Mr. Tebrick was alone, he rejoiced exceedingly in his solitary life. He understood, or so he fancied, what it was to be happy, and that he had found complete happiness now, living from day to day, careless of the future, surrounded every morning by playful and affectionate little creatures whom he loved tenderly, and sitting beside their mother, whose simple happiness was the source of his own. True happiness, he said to himself, is to be found in bestowing love, there is no such happiness as that of the mother for her babe, unless I have attained it in mine for my vixen and her children. With these feelings, 
He waited impatiently for the hour on the morrow when he might hasten to them once more. When, however, he had toiled up the hillside to the earth, taking infinite precaution not to tread down the bracken or make a beaten path which might lead others to that secret spot, he found to his surprise that Sylvia was not there, and that there were no cubs to be seen either. He called to them, but it was in vain, and at last he laid himself on the mossy bank beside the earth and waited. End of part seven.